You know, back in the 1960s, there's a fellow named J.B. Phillips wrote a book, and I've got a picture of the cover on it, called Your God is Too Small. And that has always marked me. I've read the book a number of years back, but just the title alone has always challenged me. Not that God himself is small, but quite often what it is is how we think about God, we make him small. And so in the first half of his book, as he writes to people, to Christians in particular, he just goes on and reminding us about how often we see God maybe like as a policeman or just a kindly old gentleman, but we don't see him in his fullness. And the second half of the book is when he begins to orient our thinking towards recognizing uh, the, just how substantial, how big, how mighty, how glorious our God is that we worship. And so I'm, I'm sure you're like me. Too often in my life, I have not seen him in that light. And I can sort of reduce him down to my circumstances and, and make him small within my mind and in just the way I think about him. Well, for the next several weeks, what I want to do with you is I want to go through a book in the Bible that is going to help us in terms of how we think about God and thinking about God accurately and rightly in his greatness. So we're going to be going through the Old Testament book of Ezra. And... Uh, I think when it comes to Ezra, most Christians will go, yeah, I'm familiar with that book. I've heard it by name. But then you start digging a little deeper and say, what's it about? And most of us will go, I don't know. I need to go get a brush up and a reminder as to what exactly is going on. Let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. This book is going to show you a lot of things. And the first thing it's going to show you is God is a whole lot bigger than you give him credit for in his might and his abilities. And my prayer is that as we study this book, as we go through it in the next few weeks, that it's going to transform our sense of worship of him. Because as our understanding of him in reality begins to be elevated, that ought to move our worship of him and elevate that as well. And that's part of my prayer, that we see him for the power that he has, the ability and the capacity that he has. But a fair warning, this book is also going to show you what he thinks about sin and how we have sin. But thanks be to God, the book doesn't end with just how God deals with sin. It's always coming back to who he is and how he continues to graciously reach out and to minister to his people. Now, as we go through this, we need a little bit of context. I liken it to if I gave you a little block of wood that's about, you know, three inches long, an inch and a half wide, and about a quarter inch thick, and said, here you go, you'd look at it and you'd say, I have no idea what this is for. But if I gave you things like a spring and a trigger and other things, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. This is part of a mousetrap. But it doesn't make sense until you have the remaining parts. And I think a lot of times when it comes to studying God's word, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us unless we can understand it historically and why it is in the Bible uh, in the place that it is. So I want to spend the first half of the time that we have today just kind of getting our bearings, going through sort of the biblical orientation of the book. In the second half, we're going to look at the first few verses of the first chapter. So to do so, we've got to go back in time. And as we go back in time, it's when Judah was ruled by the kings. Now, if you've been doing the Bible reading with us, uh, we just finished up Second Chronicles, and you've seen how that has gone. And it hasn't gone all too well. Occasionally, there were, there were good kings, and occasionally Israel would follow, but not always. And it was a tough time. And the period closed with God judging his people. And as a result, he sent them into captivity. Babylon came in, Nebuchadnezzar leveled things out, defeated them, and took them into exile. And it's all because they had forsaken God. They had traded God for the idols of their day. And they found the value and worth and worship into the, and devoted them into those things. And so God looks at them and says, oh, you like idols. Okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have them. 
And that's exactly what happened when they went to Babylon. They saw a people that had an idol worship. They experienced that. And uh, when you read the rest of the Bible, you, you figure out pretty quick, God broke Israel of idolatry through this captivity. It was that severe. It was that big of an event in their lives. By the way, have you ever had God do that to you? You kind of had that thing, that idol, that whatever it is that you sort of held up almost higher than him. No, you would hold it up higher than him. That's what makes it an idol. And a lot of times it can, idols can be very good things in and of themselves until we elevate them into this other role in this position. You ever had God just hand you over to those things? I have. It is not pleasant. You know, maybe it's success that you want. God gives you success, and all of a sudden you start to discover there's a, a vapidness about it, you know, that there's, there's something lacking in something like that. Or popularity. I want, I want people to like me. And then before long, you find out you're having to surrender too many things. And then on top of that, it's just exhausting to do that because you never really attain that place where you would achieve that. And that's what idols do. And so God gave them over. And as a result, it soured in their mouth. And it, so it is with us. Well, as God gave them over, he, they went into this land for 70 years. Now, stop and think about that. 70 years. That's three and a half generations. A long time to be out there. And a few people had been left within the land, but many of them had been taken away 800 miles away to a place that speaks a different language. You don't even know the language. You can't even speak that. And so as part of captivity, it's getting your bearings, getting oriented into this new land where you've been exported, often as a second-class citizen. And many of them would go without their parents or be separated from their parents. They'd go without their spouses or their children and just start over completely. And yet, God had given them a promise. This isn't permanent. This is a season, but it is going to happen. And uh, he was going to bring them back, but in the meantime, they had lost everything. The temple that they worshiped God utterly destroyed. So it was a hard time. And a lot of them felt a sense of abandonment by God. He has given us up. He has cast us aside. Have we hit the point of no return? But the reality was that was not true. This was a time. This was a season. But God was not going to hand them over permanently. And they would ask frequently, will God remember us? Have we gone that far that he would forget us? And they were learning God's holiness was a whole lot more significant than they actually gave him credit for initially. And how important it was for them to know it and to adhere to it. And they can't trifle with that holiness. That was the big lesson that they learned. I illustrate it this way. One of my favorite shows of all time uh, was made-for-TV miniseries, Lonesome Dove. And there's this one particular scene where Robert Duvall and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, they're two aging Texas Rangers, and the both of them walk into this saloon in San Antonio. And as they go in, they're ordering a drink, and the bartender just really rude to them, mistreats them, speaks down to them, very degrading. And so as they're waiting patiently, they get their drink served, and Robert Duvall, who's Augustus McRae, takes his coin, he puts it on the bar. When the bartender reaches down to get it, he grabs him by the head and smashes his face into the bar. And uh, the bartender gets up, he's all sh shook up, his nose is bleeding. And uh, in that moment, McRae pulls out his pistol and puts it right in the man's cheek. And he says, now, in addition to getting service, I demand a little respect. And he takes him and he pushes his face so that he looks on the back wall. And on the back wall, there's this picture of these Texas Rangers when they were young. 
And he makes the point in speaking to him. He says, now, if you'll look back on this wall, you'll see us in a time when we were young. And he's highlighting the fact that we were the ones who brought law and order into this land. We were the ones that established a place where you can actually establish an establishment and bring about peace and a means of accomplishing this. But we got no respect from him for it. And so as a result, he puts his gun away, takes his drink, throws it up in the air, pulls the gun back out, blows it to smithereens, clears out the saloon. <laughs> and you kind of go, wow, these guys, they got a sense of, uh, there's a sense of awe that you're meant to have with them. And how do you think the bartender would be with them at that point? Speaks down to them once again. Again, just a real degrading tone. So as a result, he backhands him, knocks him out cold. They get their own drink, and they walk out, and the fabric of the universe has been established once again in San Antonio because the Texas Rangers have said, you cannot deal with us in this way. And I share all that because in, in many ways, I feel like that is an incredible picture of what it is that Israel had done with her God. He had given them everything. He had provided so many things and made his presence known to them and invited them into a relationship with him. But as a result, they just turned around and they badmouthed him and disregarded him, treated him with contempt. So as a result, he was going to have to do the old face into the bar routine. He was going to bring them into a foreign country for 70 years to teach them, I am holy. And you can't trifle with that. And God had a purpose behind it. He wasn't just being mean. It was for their good that they would know and they would understand this. So, as a result, what you have in the book of Ezra is sort of on the backside of all this. And as, as Jerusalem, or the people of Israel are coming out of this captivity, there is a new time and a sense of renewal. God has chastened them. And now as a result, he is ready to bring them back into the land and to reestablish his relationship with them. And that's ultimately what this book is mostly about. It's about a sense of renewal. The first part is how God was first going to generate a renewal through the physical means they needed to build their temple once again. Because remember, in that day, that's how you approached and worshiped God. You had to go to the tabernacle that he had established under the priesthood that he set up. So this is how you worship. But that's only the first part. The second part is a time in which you're going to see the priority of walking with God. And that's going to involve the gentleman who the book is named after, Ezra. And Ezra is going to be about not so much building a temple as much as rebuilding people's hearts and getting that established right with God. Now, I've got Esther up there. We won't study Esther, but you can kind of see where it fits in the time frame. It's in between chapters 6 and 7 within the book of Ezra. And so the way this is communicated is ultimately on the structure of the text. You've got these two leaders primarily. The first one's a guy named Zerubbabel, and that's chapters 1 through 6 and the oversight and the building of the temple. And the second one, as I mentioned, is Ezra, and he comes in in chapters 7 through 10. And in some ways, I kind of liken this a little bit to another exodus for the people of Israel. It's not quite the same thing. You can't put them on the same comparison. But in many ways, there are some similarities. They're coming out of a captivity. They're going into not a new promised land, but the promised land that they once inhabited. And one of the key differences being, in the first exodus, under Moses, God had to take Pharaoh, and through his hardened heart, he would work despite Pharaoh. But in this one, it's going to be substantially different, because Cyrus is going to come on the scene, and God's going to work in Cyrus's heart that he willingly sends the people out. Zerubbabel takes the first group, and uh, once they come out, and he's got just about a little under 50,000 people with him. 
to make that 800-mile trek out of Babylon. The time gap between chapters 1 and 7 is about 80 years, and almost 60 of those are in between chapters 6 and 7. And so then when you get to the point where Ezra comes on the scene, he comes with another group, much smaller, only about 1,700 people that come with him. But we find that spiritually things have stalled out. It's not good. So the temple is going to be rebuilt in this book. But now when Ezra comes back, it's going to be the hearts of the people that have to be rebuilt. And old habits and old ways of thinking have to be undone. And God has to generate a change. So here's why we're going to go through this book. First of all, it's the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, then it is profitable and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. But I think this book is also going to be very good for us as we continue to go through our own season of renewal. And it's going to push every single one of us to do two things. First, you're going to go, have to go inward yourself. But then we're also going to have to go inward within our church to really examine who is it that we're worshiping and why are we doing what we're doing to then see the power and the might of God as a result of it, to then go out of ourselves from, from within ourselves and within our church and to, uh, to accomplish what it is that God would have us to accomplish. And it's going to push you. You're going to see the magnificence and the power of God in a new way, in his power and his holiness. It's going to open your eyes to that. But it's also a warning, as I mentioned before. You're going to see your sinfulness in this too. And that's never pleasant to go through and to see. But... God brings his people back, and you'll get a renewed sense of worship and obedience. And, you know, I hope under God that as we see our own weaknesses, we learn a new dependence on him and how trustworthy he is. So I'm subtitling the series that we're going to do this, and, and as we go through this book, if you want to see renewal, with each chapter completing that sentence in somewhat of a new way. And so this week, if you want to see renewal, then you've got to be expectant to see God at work. With that in mind, if you take your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1 and stand with me at this time, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. Ezra 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem. And every survivor, whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Father in heaven, our prayer is as it is every week. We ask that your word cuts through to our hearts. Show us things about yourself. Build our faith. Change us. Make us more into the image of Jesus Christ through it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you were reading 2 Chronicles with us, those verses ought to sound familiar because that's exactly how 2 Chronicles ends, almost verbatim. These verses just kind of go on a little bit further in terms of uh, what it was that Cyrus was going to do. But it's setting the stage for all of us. Babylon, where all the Jews have been held captive, has a new ruler. The Medo-Persians are coming in and taking over this kingdom. And now you've got Cyrus, 
who's the leader of that, in 539 B.C., on October 12th, according to, I think it was Herodotus, uh, he, his army gets in, and then I think it was 12 days later, 17 days later, Cyrus himself walks into this city. And God did a work through a pagan man that doesn't really recognize him. Because everything else we have about this guy is that he never necessarily gave up his idols. He was just one of these that kind of wanted to cover all his bases. And so what he would do as a means of keeping people at peace and not allowing revolutions to kick up and take over is he had a policy. We're going to honor you as a people. We're going to honor your gods. And then on top of that, he was going to allow, even encourage people to leave where they had been taken captive to be able to go back to their homes. And that's why Cyrus says, it's been appointed for me by God to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And he goes on to say, wherever the... Uh, there is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem. So again, why is Cyrus doing this? This is the new policy. This is how he would work. And when you read um, writers of history and what they say, they give you these reasons. But the Bible gives you a different reason. And the different reason is God was at work. And this guy, even though he didn't necessarily know who God was, he was very much under the control of God. And God would lead him to do this. And so it is God who is causing this to happen. In fact, God made a prophecy about this a few times, nearly 100 years before it happened. Uh, you can see it in both Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 44, 28. In Jeremiah 25, 10, God said, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So, this is God speaking well in advance, decades before this event actually happened. And then nearly a hundred years earlier, it was Isaiah who made this prophecy. And he said, it is I who says of Cyrus. He calls Cyrus by name a century before he's even born. He is my shepherd and he'll perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Don't miss that, ladies and gentlemen. God had a plan. And because he had a plan, he was going to see it through. And it just so happened he was going to do it through, at the time, what became the most powerful man in the known civilized world at that time. But he wasn't just doing what he wanted to do. He was ultimately going to accomplish God's bidding. Some of you might remember one of the Proverbs that says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Do not dismiss that, ladies and gentlemen about the power and the might of God. He is the almighty God, and that truth is timeless and one that we have to continue to come back to and hold on to repeatedly. No ruler can thwart his plans. There is nothing out there that is going to catch him by surprise. He is not subject to have to react merely to circumstances, but he crafts circumstances even as he is in the business of orchestrating history. And you go through the Bible and you see this repeatedly, right? I mean, Pharaoh can't stop the Israelites from leaving. God had a plan, he established it, and he made it happen. Joseph's brothers made a plan to kill him. God had a plan to use Joseph. They couldn't kill him. Sodom and Gomorrah, how long do they get to exist? For as long as God determines. And then when God decides time's up, then it's up. David's enemies, they couldn't stop him from coming to the throne as hard as they tried. Sennacherib, he couldn't take the nation on. God had purpose that he would not be the one who would do something like that. 
And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't keep the nation within his own nation. He couldn't even ultimately protect his own nation because it was overrun later on. And then you keep going in the New Testament and you see the same thing. In fact, in the New Testament was Caesar Augustus decreed a census. But the Bible makes it clear that was God's doing because he wanted to send Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would be born in the city of David. And this is how he would do it. And later you can go into Acts chapter 4 and see that Herod and Pilate's actions of crucifying Jesus Christ were actually in line with the plan of God. That God purposed that this would happen because he would be the sacrifice for our sins. And so you've got God using Philemon's runaway slave to get him out of that environment, to put him in Paul's path so that he would later be saved. And then we get the book of Philemon, which gives us eternal biblical truth because of all these actions that God has got going on and is using uh, in his own time and in his ways. And then you can't get past the Bible and you see these big names like the Antichrist and the Beast, and they don't win out, despite all the destruction and the harm that they seek and they want and they try to do. At the end of the day, they will actually serve God's causes and bring him glory. Amazing. So, with that in mind, let me just ask you, if God is that powerful, then let's make it personal. Why do we let fear and anxiety drive so many of our decisions and our choices when we can't control circumstances? Those are going to be outside of our control. Let me make this really close to home. Why do Christians panic so bad about elections? Why do Christians panic so bad over Supreme Court decisions? Concern, there's a place for that. Panic and fear, your God is too small. If that's where our hearts go, your God is too small. Why does a job change freak us out so bad? Why does the thought of persecution coming our way terrify us? Do we not worship the God who can oversee rulers and cause them to do whatever it is that he has determined and purposed that they would do? The reality is the reason we struggle with this, and I'm, I'm not standing up here as somebody like, oh, I got this licked. I never struggle with this. No, I do too. The reason in those moments our God is too small. We don't see him in the reality of who he is. And we don't believe that his plan ultimately is something we can trust him with. Now, when you hear this, I don't want anybody walking out of here going, Pastor Jack says it doesn't matter what we do. We just throw our hands up in the air and we, we don't act and we don't respond. We don't do anything. No, that is not at all what I'm saying. Uh, there's, God has established the ends and God establishes the means. I can't deal with the ends, but I am totally responsible and accountable to deal with the means as God puts them in my path. Give you a great illustration of what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 27. This is the one where the Apostle Paul is being transported on a ship, and he goes to the ship's captain. And he says, I don't think we should do this because this is not going to end well, and there's going to be a whole lot of loss of property and goods. And they ignored him, and they went out onto the water. As they go, sure enough, a big storm comes, and everyone starts freaking out. And Paul sits them all down on the ship, and he makes this comment. He says, look, I kind of was, and I told you so. Look, I told you guys. I told you this was going to happen. You didn't listen to me. But here's the good news. God himself has personally revealed to me that a lot of damage is going to happen, but everybody's going to make it. Nobody's going to die on this ship. Well, wouldn't that encourage you? Well, the storm doesn't let up. In fact, it gets worse. And as it gets worse, there's one point where some of the sailors are taking the lifeboat, and they're going to sneak off, and they're going to get away. 
And the Apostle Paul pulls the uh, leader of the ship aside, and he says, hey, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, how can he say that? He just said everybody's going to make it. And at the same time, he's going, unless they stay on, this isn't going to happen. That's the tension. God establishes the ends, and God establishes the means. Well, those sailors stayed on, and sure enough, the boat ran aground. It was utterly destroyed, as were all the good. And the chapter ends with saying, and all who were on board, all 276 persons, made it. What God said happened. So what do we do with that? At the end of the day, we do what it is God has called us to do. We follow him. We're obedient. We're faithful in that. But the outcomes, I don't get to manage that. And I have to trust in the sovereignty of God and in his broader sense of control. And he can take care of the things that I cannot. So it's kind of like what Joseph said to his brothers. Remember when they came and they said, uh, we're really sorry that we did you know, bad stuff to you. I hope you don't hold that against us. And he comes back and he says, listen, I know you meant it for evil. That's what your intent and your heart was behind it. But God meant it for good. So the point, expect God to work. You be faithful. You step out with what God has given you to do and trust him with the outcomes and how it's going to go. He can take care of the powers over you that you cannot man manage, and he will and can use them for his ends. But again, it never absolves us from our responsibility to be faithful. So God was prepping his people. You know, we're going to see Zerubbabel coming, and he's going to have difficulties, and everyone's going to have to keep coming back to this. God's in charge. We can trust him. And he's preparing his people for a new lifestyle of worship. And we see them getting ready. So let me again bring this forward. How big is your God? How big is he? You know, for the past year, let me tell you some things God's been doing in this church. He's been bringing in new people within this church. We started new ministries. We're building up this new path of discipleship. I'm super excited about that. New ways of considering worship and incorporating lifestyles of worship. And now we're stepping into the new phase. We're just now exiting a year of planning, and we're moving a lot more into execution and accomplishing the plans. And I told you early on that one of the great verses that I've held on to is that in 2 Chronicles where it says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, that he can strongly support those whose hearts are his. He's finding the resources and the things God has been working, God's been preparing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to move. We're ready. So my question, now that we're on the brink of these changes, and we're on the brink of improving how we train, how we minister, how we're going to love, how we're going to reach the people within our community, now that we have these new ideas, we have new initiatives, my question, are we going to live expectantly for God to work in mighty ways? Or are we going to be about business as usual? and not be, have our eyes open and be ready for when he works and when he does what he does. Y'all remember the story in the New Testament? Disciples are in the boat. Jesus isn't there. There's a big storm. Storm rages, and all of a sudden, they look out, and here comes somebody walking on the water and scared them to death. Remember that they said, it's a ghost. And then before long, they find out it's Jesus. And I love what Peter says. He says, Jesus, if it's you, you bid me come out there. And Jesus went, Okay, come on. <laughs> don't, you, don't you wonder what he thought in that moment? He had to go, who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> you 
And so he's standing there, and he's, okay. And he begins to step out. And lo and behold, as he's expecting, and as he has his eyes on the Lord Jesus, and he begins to move in that direction, he too is walking on the water. And then I can't help but think that somebody probably went, look out, Peter, 7 o'clock, high, big wave. He looks, eyes are off the Savior, Savior, and boom, down he goes underneath. How do you think he got back in the boat? I think Jesus picked him up, had him follow him all the way in, and I'll guarantee you he never took his eyes off Jesus from that point again. The point was, I can't look at all these other things. I can't look at how all these other things are going to be managed. I just keep my eyes on Jesus, and I follow him. And if I do that, he's going to show himself so much bigger than what I believed about him before. And he will lead me in the steps that I need to take. So your application for a passage like this, uh, there's not a lot other than this. Believe it. Believe it. To begin to see God's might and power in ways that you don't normally. And so here's what I'm going to do to aid us. I'm going to give you a verse for the next couple of weeks and challenge you to memorize it. Um, to remind you, you don't serve a limp God. You don't serve a wimp God. You don't serve a whimpering God. You serve a mighty God. And those verses are going to come out of Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, which say, Remember the former things long past, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Folks, you start memorizing something like that, it'll change you. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you see the circumstances and the things that come into your life. Realizing God's got a plan even in this adversity and this difficulty, and he will see us through. And that means we're going to align with him. We're not going to be afraid. We're not going to get distracted, but we're going to live obediently, and we're going to live expectantly.